Good morning, Riverside. It's good to be here after five years. My husband has not stopped talking about going to Avanti's after church because he misses that place. He wants to go get a gondola. It's, it's fun to be here. We have so many memories here from the first three years of being married and getting plugged into Riverside right away. And we just, this church has a special role in our hearts, especially Pastor King, and just teaching us how to be in tune with God's spirit. And like Pastor King said, I travel all over the country and go to different churches, but this church is definitely a special place. So happy Mother's Day to everyone. And um, I'm going to start today by telling you a little story about a day that changed my life forever. It was January of 2010, and John and I found out we were expecting our first child. Some of you moms know what that day is like, right? Raise your hand in here if you remember that day, the first time ever. I don't think I really had any clue what I was getting into. I mean, this parenting thing is a lot harder than it looks on the TV and the movies. And I didn't really realize the life changes that my life was about to undergo. At the time, I was working as a professional counselor at a place called the Antioch Group here in Peoria. And um, I love the Antioch Group. If you need a good counselor, that's a great place to look locally. So I was working there. I was teaching a class in the evenings. And then on the weekends, my husband and I were really involved in the ministry of the Dream Center and going down to Taft Homes. And um, we were just seeing, really seeing God at work there. And, and the fruit of the ministry at Taft Homes was just unbelievable. And to be honest with you, I really believed that God was calling me to inner city ministry. In fact, before I lived in Illinois, I lived in Virginia. And there I, I started an inner city ministry program with, with the city of Lynchburg where I lived. And, and then here I worked in inner city ministry. And I truly felt that the next step was inner city ministry. But around the same time that I found out that we were expecting, my husband got a call that we would be moving to Hershey, Pennsylvania to resume his training. How many of you have ever heard of Hershey, Pennsylvania? Yeah. So the thing about Hershey is there is no inner city. It's farmlands, dairy farms, farmers. It's a country town. In fact, the only thing brown in Hershey, Pennsylvania is the chocolate and my skin color. That's about it. So you, there really is no, hardly any minority, much less an inner city. And so I was just a little confused, like, okay, this doesn't really make much sense. I thought my life was headed in this direction of ministry, and now God is showing me that I'm going to be living in a place that doesn't even have the ministry that my heart desires. So what am I going to do? And to be honest with you, I started struggling and, and, and kind of underwent an identity crisis. So fast forward nine months, we're now living in Pennsylvania, and I have my first child, and I'm not working anymore. I went from being a full-time career woman to being a full-time mom, and I went from seeing clients and, and watching lives being changed to changing diapers full-time and being home with my daughter full-time, and... Um, you know, the, the life of a new mom, those sleepless nights and the nursing and the feeding and, I mean, your life and your body 
are, go under a complete transformation. And not only was I transforming on the outside, but also on the inside. I was going through an identity crisis and trying to figure out who I was and how I fit into the role that God had me. You know, I really believe that at some point in all of our lives, we go through a moment of identity crisis of some sort. In fact, this morning after first service, I spoke with a, an older gentleman who had just sold his business that he had had for his entire life and said, you know, I feel like I'm going under an identity crisis because now I'm just waiting to see what God has next. And whether it be your career, your relationships, um, a new child, whatever that might be, we all go through this seasons of transformation and of trying to figure out who we are. And, and we answer three questions when we're talking about identity. There are three questions that go with that. Who am I? Where do I come from? And why am I here? And the answer to those three questions is crucial because what you believe about yourself determines the kind of life that you will live out. And so our identity is a very important part. You know, as a relationship counselor, I I work with people, and my specialty is relationships. So I work with couples, and I work with singles. and, And one thing I always remind them is that the health of your life and the health of your relationships is dependent on your identity. And it's dependent on who you believe you are. Let's start with Mark chapter 12. There's a little verse there that I want to start with. Because it kind of unpacks this concept of identity. And why is identity such an important thing? Mark 12, 31 is a verse you've probably heard in church. You may have attended a class on it. It may have even been printed somewhere in front at a church building or on a sign. But it says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. A very familiar passage. But so many times in church, we focus on the love your neighbor part. And we forget that there's a whole other aspect to that verse. As you love yourself. I was recently speaking at Belmont University in Nashville. Anyone from Nashville? (laughs) I hear you. It's an awesome city. And um, I was out after the talk walking around downtown Nashville with a friend of mine. Um, My children had asked me to bring them back a souvenir. I have an almost three-year-old and a -a four-and-a-half-year-old, and so they were, like, dying to have their souvenir. So I went to look downtown to see what I could find, and I walked into this store with a big guitar on it, and I walked in, and there's a sweet lady from Tennessee with with a thick Tennessee accent, and she was checking my things out at the cash register, and she started asking me, you know, what I, what I was doing here and, and why I was visiting Nashville. And any therapist will tell you, you never tell someone you're a therapist because you end up hearing their life story. So I was, you know, thinking, how am I going to describe this? I'll choose my words carefully. So I told her, well, I'm here to do a talk. And she said, well, what's your talk about? And I said, I'm talking about relationships. She then proceeded to tell me her life story. So there was no getting around it. But she told me a story about how she had been in three toxic relationships with three different men at different points in her life. And from these three men, she had three children out of wedlock. And unfortunately, all of those three children, she had to put up for adoption because she just wasn't at a place where she could raise them. And she said, you know, 
as I look at my life, one thing I realize is I'm good at loving people, but I don't really love myself. And I think she's onto something with that statement. Because how can we be healthy at relationships and how can we be good at interacting with others if we don't really know and love ourselves? And that's why the concept of identity is so important. And the thing is, I really believe Satan knows that the concept of identity is so important because he is out to steal, kill, and destroy our God-given identity. And he does that in three ways. And we're going to talk about those three ways today. So if you're taking notes, this is a great time to jot some things down. The first way the enemy robs us of our identity is by haunting us with the demons of our past. We all have some sort of a past. We all have a story. And I had the opportunity to hear so many amazing stories after first service of God's redemption. But so many of us come from very dark and difficult pasts. And for a lot of us, our past is determined by what we call in psychology our family of origin. Family of origin is basically the complicated way of saying who raised you. How did you grow up? Because your family of origin determines a lot about who you are today. You learned how to love, and you learned how to receive love. You learned how to communicate love by what was communicated to you and your family of origin. Recently, I met a woman named Andrea who came into my counseling office. And I'll call her Andrea, but that's not her real name. For confidentiality, we'll call her Andrea. And Andrea came in to see me, but truly she was stuck on her past. She was unable to get over the struggles of her youth, and she just kept looking back, fixating on the neglect, reliving the abuse, analyzing the rejection. 20 years later is when I met her, 20 years after all of those things, and she was still asking why and trying to make sense of it all. Yet by continually looking back, she was losing sight of her present and wasting away her future. The past can be paralyzing, and it can be really hard not to look back. Whether you're looking back at things that have been done to you, or things that you have been through yourself, things that you have done yourself. Maybe you look back at your past and it's filled with shame and bad decisions and mistakes. The past can be paralyzing. And it's not a new problem, you know? We look back in the book of Genesis. When God called Lot and his wife out of Sodom, he called them out of the old and into the new. He called them out of the darkness of their past and into the blessings that he had in store for them. Out of the sin and struggles they were surrounded by into something better and into something greater. But unfortunately, Lot's wife was unable to move forward. In fact, the Bible tells us that in Genesis 19.26, she looked back and became a pillar of salt. She was incapable of moving from what was behind her. And when we read that in Genesis, we're looking at this literally. She literally turned into a pillar of salt. But figuratively speaking, that happens in our own life too. Because the past can hold us back and prevent us from moving forward. 
In my occupation as a professional counselor, I'm constantly working with people. And one place we always start is in tackling the things of their past. You know, I have to say that I really think it's healthy to take some time to look back. It's healthy to sort through our past and realize what things from our past made us who we are today and how our past has impacted us. It's important to heal from our past. The problem is then, though, when we end up fixating on our past and our gaze is set on what is behind us and not what is ahead of us. We ultimately will also waste our present and our future. God calls us to look forward. He calls us to see the new things that he is doing in our life rather than dwell on the old. He wants us to focus on hope, on healing, and on our potential. Instead of wasting our life on judgments and regrets and unending analysis of should have, would have, could have, God is calling us to move forward. And you know, one thing I love as a, as a therapist is that I see though our past may shape us, it doesn't have to define us. And there's a big difference there. And you know, Paul understood this. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, he says this, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You know, for some of you, dealing with your past means opening up to a friend and sorting through some of that stuff, being genuine. For some of you, it means opening up to your spouse. For some of you, it means finding a mentor, someone who has gone ahead of you in faith, someone who can hold you up spiritually and walk you through the hard times. But for many of you, especially those who have a past like Andrea, of addictions and abuse, abandonment or neglect, this does require the help of a professional, someone who's going to come alongside of you and walk with you through these hard moments and help free you from your past by God's grace. And I really know that our church here, Pastor King and the leaders here have many resources. They have many places to refer you to, or you can get plugged in to someone locally and start the work of healing in your life today so that the enemy can no longer use your past against you. So the first thing the enemy uses is your past. The second thing the enemy uses to rob you of your God-given identity are the voices in your present, right here, right now. Who am I? That's question number two that we answer when we're talking about figuring out our identity. And the thing about it is there's a huge difference between who you think you are and who you actually are. In fact, I always joke that I have a closet full of pre-baby clothing that I'm still hoping to one day fit into and I'm not willing to get rid of. All the ladies are laughing because they know exactly what I'm talking about. But that goes to show you there's a huge difference between who you think you are, who you want to be, and who you actually are. Side note to the men on Mother's Day, when she does put on that outfit and asks you how she looks, make sure you always say, awesome, okay? Don't forget that. That's like my one therapy tip for you today. 
But the truth is, if there's such a difference between who we think we are and who we actually are with even just physical appearance, how much more with our spiritual and emotional world, with what's going on inside of us? You know, the thing is, getting, your pa- getting to know your past is not always an easy thing, and it can be really hard to do, especially because we tend to be influenced by the voices around us, telling us who we are. There's a psychologist by the name of John Locke. He's one of the founding fathers of psychology. And he has this theory that he calls the tabula rasa theory. In Latin, that means the blank slate theory. And what that means is he believes that when we were born, we are all born as a blank slate. Imagine a big white blank slate behind me. And as we interact with people, as we get to know people, as we engage in relationships, John Locke believes that our identity is shaped by the things that people start writing upon us, the things that people start telling us. They start telling us who we are, and we start believing those things. And sometimes those words are good, sometimes they're bad, and sometimes they're downright ugly And most of those words are actually lies. And for many of us, we end up believing those lies. And we get so good at confessing them, saying them out loud, confessing what we're not, instead of confessing who we are in Christ. When you came in today, you received a label that said, hello, my name is. If you don't have a label, raise your hand. If you don't have a pen, raise your hand, because we're going to do an activity. And if you put your name on that label already, no biggie. But don't put your name on these labels. I want you to write something else. What I want you to write is this. What is a label that you have been carrying? What is a negative label that someone has placed on you, or maybe you've even placed it on yourself. We're going to take a minute or two of silent prayer and reflection time. And as you came in, you probably saw some crosses with labels on them. And and as we leave today, we're going to be using those crosses. But the crosses are full of words that people in first service have been struggling with. Words that were placed on you that God never intended for you to carry. So I want you to think of just one negative word that you have been carrying and write it down on that label and hold on to it. We're going to take a minute of prayer and then I'm going to come back and tell you what to do next. Hopefully you've all had a minute to just reflect. Up on the screen, you're going to notice a list of labels. Anytime I go to speak, I typically speak on dating, love, and relationships when I get asked to speak. But no matter what I'm talking about, I always try to integrate this labels activity in the talk because I really believe that there is just something powerful about acknowledging the things that we carry and we don't even realize it. And everywhere I go, no matter if I'm speaking to young people or the elderly, black or white, men or women, rich or poor, every single person carries a label, sometimes many. And inevitably, I I tend to see the same kinds of words appearing. There's always a theme. 
And these are some of the words that I have read and some of the words you'll find on the crosses on your way out. I'm going to read some of these out loud. Failure. Unwanted. Worthless. Deformed. Not good enough. Invisible. Slut. Damaged. Unlovable. Ugly. Different. Useless. Invisible. These are the words that we carry. And we we don't just carry them upon us, but we bring them into relationships as well. You know, one thing I talk about when it comes to having healthy relationships, it starts with becoming healthy while standing alone. Yet we carry these labels upon us, labels that God never intended for us to carry. And the beautiful thing about God is that he comes to rip off the old labels. God doesn't just come to write a couple nice labels on there and stick them on with all the bad ones. He comes to completely obliterate the old and start something new. We are a new creation when we are identified with Christ. And there's something very powerful about that. You know, for me, when I went through that identity crisis, and whether it be about relationships or about a new job or about a new role in your life, the bottom line is that the only thing unchanging that we can root our identity in is God's unchanging word and his unchanging truths about who we are. And for me, it meant digging into God's word and digging into scripture to find out who I was in that moment of, of, of struggling with figuring out my identity. And here are some verses that meant a lot to me during that time. The Bible is full of amazing passages about who you are in Christ, but I'm just going to read some that impacted me. The first one reminds me, you are chosen. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him. The second one, you are accepted. 1 Peter 2.10, You are to tell the others of the night and day difference he made for you from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. That's no longer your label. You are no longer rejected. The third one, you are noticed. Psalm 139 reminds us, you have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. One reason I love that verse is because I really think it applies to us as a culture. Sometimes I say that we're the Facebook culture because we just love to feel validated, don't we? I mean, I think the only reason we have social media is because we all long to be noticed. And some of us, as you noticed up there, some of us feel invisible, you know, and, and we're constantly updating our status and telling people what we're doing and where we're going and what we're eating and take pictures of our breakfast. We do, don't we? All because we long to be noticed. 
We want someone to validate our life. And I believe David had that same desire. It was just recently, and I was reading Psalm 139, and I realized it's essentially a book of status updates. I mean, David is telling God, you know when I sit, you know when I rise, you know when I come, you know when I go, you see me from afar. I mean, he's just, it's like one thing after another, and he's just asking the Lord for validation. We have a deep need to be noticed, and we are. We are noticed by an almighty God. There is something really powerful about that truth. Another truth, you are forgiven. Colossians 2.14, he has taken away your sin and nailed it to the cross. You are loved. 1 John 3.1, what great love the Father has lavished upon us. And the reason we start in scripture is because you cannot know who you are until you know whose you are. Which brings us to our third point. First, the enemy robs you by haunting you with your past. Second, he fills you with false voices in the present. And the last thing he does to rob you of your identity is to steal your vision for the future. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen says this, where there is no vision, the people perish. And when we're talking about vision, we're not just talking about what you want to do when you grow up. I see a lot of young people in the room today you know, maybe some college age, maybe some high schoolers. And, you know, it's not just about what do you want to do when you grow up. God's vision for your life is more about your calling than your career. But one thing that is kind of funny, one of my favorite comedians named Michael Jr., he talks about his four-year-old little boy coming up to him and saying to him, Dad, I want to be a doctor. And Michael Jr. said, you know, four years old, he's already thinking about being a doctor. He's got vision. He's got goals. He's got ambition. And then the four-year-old says, or a dinosaur. (laughs) And Michael Jr. is like, ah. But how many of us sometimes feel like that four-year-old when we look ahead? Like, what do we want to be? I don't know. There's such a chasm sometimes when we're looking at our future and what we want to do and trying to figure out who we are. Mark Twain says this, the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. And the beautiful thing about it is that for the believer in Christ, the day you find out why is synonymous with entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ because he becomes your life. And it's not simply about what you want to do when you grow up. It now becomes about what has God called me to do? What is God's calling upon my life? So I ask you this, what is God calling you to do? No matter how old you are, what is God calling you to do? For that elderly man I spoke to this morning, he's figuring out God's calling right now. So it doesn't matter what your age is. There's different stages in life where God is calling us to different things. What are your talents? What are your strengths? What are the gifts that are unique to you? What are you passionate about? And how are you allowing God to use those things to fulfill the calling he's placed on your life? John Piper says this, Desire that your life count for something great. Long for your life to have eternal significance. 
Don't coast through life without passion. Because God made us who we are to show the world who he is. Going back to my identity crisis as a new mom, just trying to figure out God's role for me at that new stage of life. And God led me to the passage in Acts chapter 28, the very last chapter of the book of Acts. And I've read Acts millions of times. I mean, come on, we we grow up reading these books of the Bible, but sometimes God just reveals a word to us in a very important moment. And God did that for me. As I'm reading through Acts, I'm reading about Paul and his life. And when we think of Paul, we think of a great man. We think of miracles. We think of him healing the sick. We think of him preaching and thousands of people coming to know Jesus. But Paul, but Acts 28 ends with Paul under house arrest. He is under house arrest in Rome, chained to a Roman guard. And I'll be honest, when I read that, I could totally relate because I felt like I was under house arrest in a different way. Granted, I wasn't chained to a Roman guard, but I was chained to a seven pound baby And she was just as bossy. I mean, with her nursing schedule and her nap time schedule, she knew exactly what she needed. And pretty much she ran my life. She became the boss the second she was born. And to be honest, I kind of struggled for a little while under that weight and trying to figure out who I was. Now, I want to take a little break here and remind you moms out there, especially new moms. There is a season in which motherhood is your primary ministry. There is nothing greater than being a mom. In fact, there's nothing more influential than being a mom. And and, and we saw these adorable babies up here. And, And I think of my two kids, and we are just pouring life into them. We are shaping their identity and creating them to be someone for Jesus. And it's very important to see that job as a very serious ministry. But to be honest with you, I felt like I was at a place in in my mothering where God was calling me to go back to ministry in a different way. I will always have the ministry of motherhood. That is a part of who I am now. But I felt like God was calling me to something a little bit more. And I wasn't exactly sure how that looked in my life as a full-time mom. But then I read this amazing verse, Acts 28, verse 30 and 31. And it says this about Paul. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house while under house arrest. And he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul made it his mission to proclaim Christ no matter what the circumstances of his life. In fact, as we look at that time in history, we know that Scripture tells us that during that time under house arrest, he invited the Jewish leaders into his home. He couldn't go anywhere, but he could invite people in. And he invited the Jewish leaders and he debated with them and discussed with them and convinced them about Jesus Christ. He also encouraged his brothers. It's noted that many of his Christian brothers came to visit him, including Mark and many others, and he encouraged them in his home. Another thing is he encouraged the church at large by writing letters. He spent his time writing letters. Though he couldn't go anywhere, 
Biblical scholars agree that during that time, Paul wrote the epistles of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, all while under house arrest. And at that point, I felt that God was calling me to something similar. Though I couldn't leave my home necessarily as freely as I could before, I can invite people over. And I started inviting new moms in the area and having them over for coffee and for lunch. And I started getting to know my neighbors and and interacting with them and, and sharing Jesus with them in the way that I could. And eventually, I started writing. During nap times, those precious hours of nap time, I started writing. And I, and I started by writing a blog. And that blog turned into articles. And those articles turned into a book deal. And that book turned into a ministry, a ministry that takes me all across the country, and a ministry that's set to reach over 2 million people just this year. All because of a stay-at-home mom. And I'll be honest, I don't tell you that story to brag because God knows that on my sleep-deprived abilities alone, I could not have accomplished any of that. And sometimes I still, even as I'm speaking, sometimes I'm thinking, Lord, I have no clue what you're doing here. But the truth is, God is longing to work with us wherever we are at. And he wants us to live fully for him wherever we are at. And I truly believe that God is calling you to do the same. It might not be a book. It might not be a a, a big ministry. It might not be preaching. But what is God calling you to do in your life today? Maybe you feel like you're at a dead end. You know, maybe you are at the dead end like Paul was, but maybe yours looks like a broken relationship or a hurting marriage. Maybe your dead dead end is an illness that has kept you home and unable to do the things that you want to do. Maybe it's a job that's ended, an unemployment issue. Maybe it's even an unfulfilled longing. Maybe you're sitting in this room and you're single and you're longing to find that person God has for you and he hasn't given that person to you yet. Or maybe you're a couple, a married couple that's longing to have a baby and God hasn't blessed you with a baby But my challenge to you is today, no matter what your dead end, may God turn your suffering into your sermon. No matter where life leads you, that you would live fully for Christ right here and right now. My encouragement and my challenge to you, whether you're a mother with kids, whether you're a husband at a dead-end job, whether you're a college student trying to make sense of an unknown future. May God rip off all the false labels that have been holding you back and show you the truth about your identity in him. Would you bow your heads with me? For some of you here today, the concept of labels and dealing with your past may have deeply resonated with you because God is trying to speak to you. God is longing to remove some of those lies and replace them with his truth. If that is you, I would like you to raise your hand so I can include you in this prayer. I see your hands. 
And Lord Jesus, right now, I just pray for every hand lifted and every heart that's open right now, Lord. And I just thank you for our true identity in you. I thank you, God, that you don't just write over the labels, but you remove them. You remove them with your love. And Lord, you see these beautiful faces. And you know what they're struggling with. You know their hurts, Lord. And I just pray that in a powerful way, you would come and remove the false labels and replace them with your truth and empower them to live fully and completely for you. In Jesus' name, amen. My challenge is to you today as you're leaving to take those labels on your way out and leave them at the cross. And even take some time to pray over some of the labels that others have left, that God would do a mighty work and that our labels would be left here today forevermore. God bless you guys.